0: The first question that people ask you when you are there to meet them is, what is your name? That is the tag. That's your identification. Uh, it gives you distinction from everybody else. It gives you access to the person. If you wanted to go to a firm where a lot of people are working, if you just walked in and say, I'd like to see my friend, you won't get very far. But if you give them a tag, I'd like to see John Firkenbinder, Oh yeah he works back in accounting. That tag grants access to the person and the personality. And so names have always been important to people throughout generations. Of course they still are today there's even name books for your baby. They're about 400 pages thick now and you have names from all over the world and people we had the hardest time trying to pick our kids name. In fact, the book made it more confusing. After we scrapped the book and he was born, we decided on a name. It is the tag. It also tells usually something about the parents and and their design for their child. When I was born, my mom and dad got in a fight. (laughs) My father's name is Lou, and he wanted another Lou. Because I was his fourth boy, and uh, they didn't have a girl, they'd like a girl, they didn't get one, they got me. And he, this is his chance to have a junior. So he said, he's going to be called Lou Junior. My mom said, no he's not. He's going to call him Skip. Nope, it's my boy, Lou Junior. And they went back and forth, and they finally came up to an agreement that on the birth certificate, it would be Lewis. Junior, that's my legal name. Now, don't kid me with that after the service. (laughs) My mom said, fine, we'll do that, but we're always going to call him Skip. And so throughout my life and all throughout my school, I was called Skip, and it was confusing for people if they read my birth certificate. But it was special for them to give me some kind of an identification tag uh, that would be or depict something they wanted to express. So it was with the Father, I believe, in his mind when he sent Jesus. And we're going to discuss that name that the angel gave to him, Jesus, not tonight, but in a further study, or Emmanuel, God with us. But I've had you turn to Mark chapter 6 because Jesus in this chapter is identified with the occupation that he came from. And before we get right into the text... As you know, the second question people ask when they meet you is what your occupation is usually. What's your name? John Firkenbinder. Oh, what do you do, John? I'm a banker. And often we tag or we categorize people by their contribution to society, we call it, their occupation. In fact, as we said last week, during the medieval times when the populations were growing and growing and they only tagged people by a first name like John or Pete or George, or Charles, they deemed it necessary to link up their occupation. And so we developed names like Charles Taylor, because he was a tailor, or George Butcher, or Frank Cook, because the occupation was the identification tag along with the first name. As we read the New Testament, we find that Jesus several times uses in his teaching analogies occupations of people. Behold, a sower went out to sow. I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And of course, many of the personalities in the Scripture we know by their occupation. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon Peter was a fisherman. We have Alexander the coppersmith. Simon the tanner. Their names are linked with their occupations. And so also was Jesus. He was not only called the Nazarene, as we saw last week, but he's called the carpenter. He was known in his hometown as the one who fixed things. Look at uh, chapter 6. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, the city of Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? And are these not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. There were were two reasons why his own people in Nazareth rejected him, refused to hear him. Number one, he was a local boy. They knew him. You know how difficult it is to get through to your own family members or your neighbors or your best friend that you grew up with? They didn't give me a break. I've known you. Don't put on this religious act with me. And you have the toughest time sharing with those who are the closest. And there was a second reason why they rejected him. He was a carpenter. Oh, this is the carpenter. The word carpenter in this passage is a Greek word, tecton, which means more than just a person who works with wood. Don't picture a guy out there with a belt and nails and a hammer swinging nails and two-by-four studs. In classical Greek literature, the carpenter or the tecton, as we have said, was the craftsman who built many things. He was a builder of ships, of temples, homes, many, many skills he had. However, the word used in Jesus' time was a person who was equivalent to the local handyman, the fix-it guy. He could build anything from a chicken coop to a home. He patched roofs. He would mend walls. He'd build a little gate. He'd put furniture together. He'd work with adobe bricks and build things for the community. That was the carpenter, the tecton. He was the local fix-it man. And so here Jesus comes into the synagogue and he opens up the scriptures and he starts teaching them. And people marvel and they go, wait a minute, isn't this the fix-it guy? We grew up with him. He fixed that table in my house and that hole on my roof. And here's his brothers and his sisters here. And they knew who he was, the craftsman, the layman. He was despised because he was a man of the people. He was a layman. He lacked the credentials. You know, I have said many times that God certainly uses the great schools and seminaries of our country. And he has in the past to breed young men for the ministry and send them out. Men and women to go out to the mission field and so forth. But certainly that is not the only method that God chooses when raising a people to do his work. In fact, this fact that Jesus was a carpenter set sort of a precedent because he went out of his way to pick people who weren't schooled. He picked disciples who were fishermen, tax collectors, to do the job of the ministry. So much so that in the early church, as they stood before the council in Jerusalem, the scribes and the Pharisees had their feathers ruffled a little bit, and as the disciples approached them, they said, These are unlearned and ignorant men, but they've been with Jesus. Their credentials were that they were with Jesus, the Nazarene or the carpenter, but they took note that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Notice verse 5. He could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Well, that's pretty good. And he marveled because of their unbelief. They didn't receive him. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. When Jesus came on the scene in Jerusalem and all throughout Israel, the leaders especially were shocked because here is a man claiming to be Messiah and being received as the Messiah by most of the people. And Jesus was so totally unexpected by them. Their expectation of the Messiah was not a carpenter. Uh, They were thinking of a conqueror like Alexander the Great. Someone who could be a mighty prince and take the yoke of Rome, the oppressive element of Rome, and toss it out and become king over the land, setting up the Jews as the high priority reigning over Jerusalem, using the Jewish people to reign over the whole world. And so as soon as this carpenter comes on the scene and they say, this is the Messiah, this is the King of the Jews, they scratch their head and they think, no, this is a carpenter. He's a blue-collar worker. He wasn't the white-collared, prestigiously educated person from our schools in Jerusalem. He's a fix-it man. Blue-collar, a laborer, a common person. He doesn't bear the credentials of the Messiah. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his fabulous sermons, says concerning Jesus, Prejudice could not dispute the fact of Christ's wisdom and mighty works. And so it sought to disparage him by saying, Well, after all, he's only a carpenter's son, just the son of an ordinary artisan. Shall a prophet rise up from among the chips? in the carpenter's shop shall we sit at the feet of the man who is simply a toiler at the carpenter's bench and then he goes on to say prejudice may seem very wise in its own esteem but it is really very foolish and he says just because something is of lowly origin doesn't mean it's any less important as an example if you see a diamond sitting in a manure pile Would you stop to pick it up if you knew it was a diamond? Sure you would. You wouldn't say, well, look at the way it's dressed. You'd say, hey, I can wash my hands. I'm going to get the diamond. Or because a a pearl is housed in a, a shell called an oyster, does it make it less valuable? No. Just the fact that it is clothed in humility does not taint the fact that it is precious and important. The Son of God was clothed not only in human flesh, but the flesh of a toiler, a laborer. Not a skilled craftsman or artisan, or not an educated person like the scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem. A simple carpenter. And that's what he was known. I love that. However, we don't refer to him as a carpenter when we pray. Uh, We don't say, and Lord, we just come before you now in the carpenter's name. Or when we witness, hey, have you heard the good news of the carpenter? To us, he's a savior. We don't think of him in those terms anymore. They did. His own people in Nazareth thought of him as no more than just a simple worker. Uh, We think of him as the savior, the Lord, the I am, the alpha, the omega, all those wonderful names. So the question arises, why a carpenter? Of all the occupations, why a carpenter? Uh, Why not the son of a great rabbi? Why did God send his son to be born into the house of a carpenter named Joseph? And why did Jesus learn the trade until he was 30 years old and then go out? Well, we hinted a little bit last week on the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. Isaiah said he comes as a suffering servant. Philippians, as we saw, shows Jesus poured out, remember, to the very last drop, the kenosis, the pouring out. He became a servant to death on the cross. Look at one more scripture. Refresh your mind with this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Tenth chapter of Hebrews. Verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said... Now, he's using a scripture out of the Old Testament to show prophetically what Jesus said when he came in to do the Father's will. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book... It is written of me to do your will, O God. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to fulfill the will of the Father. And when he came, he said, Here I am, Lord, I am here to do your bidding, your will. And Jesus frequently alluded to that. He said, My meat, my food, is to do the will of the Father who sent me and then to finish the work. Well, part of God's eternal plan was to send Jesus, his son, not into the palace of a king in Rome, but into the shed of a carpenter in Nazareth. To be grown up not as just a Nazarene, that despised city of the Gentiles and the Jews, but a a carpenter. In other words, he related, as we said last week, but here we see him relating to the common worker, the common laborer. If Jesus had come just with the upper class, came as a royal king born in Athens or in Rome or perhaps Jerusalem, then just the upper class could have related to him. Oh, yes, Jesus. Oh, yes, I can relate to him, the Savior. You mean the one who rode in the other day in Jerusalem in that big, beautiful red chariot? Horsemen all around and soldiers all around with banners and feathers and bells. But the common class would have said, that's Jesus the Savior, huh? Well, I can't relate to him. He doesn't know what it's like to toil and sweat. He doesn't know what it's like to work hard and toil. He's born in the king's palace, but not the carpenter. The carpenter came and could say, I relate to you guys. I'm a laborer. I'm a toiler. In fact, he could go one step beyond and say, the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. Foxes have holes, Birds of the air have nests. I don't even have a place to hang out at night. I love that. The common. I was told in my early days as a Christian, when I wanted to do some kind of a ministry, that ministry, full-time ministry, meant seminary education and then Working for a church or an organization. Now that's full-time ministry, son. You want to be in full-time ministry? You work for a church and have your wages paid by a Christian organization? That's the ministry. As I began to search the scriptures, I found out that was just not the truth. That Jesus not only relates to the common man, He chooses the common man. And I read the scriptures how that, well, oh, you got fishermen who are fishing and yet preaching you got uh, a centurion who's still a centurion, but preaching. A jailer who's converted, probably still a, still a jailer, but preaching. And so when I was going to school and work, and someone came up to me and said, Do you want to go into the ministry? I said, I am. Oh, what do you do? Well, I work over here at the hospital, and I'm going to college. Well, don't you want to go into full-time ministry? I am in full-time ministry. I spend my full time serving the Lord. In other words, I see my life as not a part-time commitment, a full-time commitment. If I happen to be working over here as a carpenter, or as a radiologist, or as a postman, or as a secretary, I am full-time in the commission work of the Lord. That's full-time ministry. It doesn't matter where you are. doesn't matter who's paying the wage. The ministry can be anywhere. Jesus the carpenter, the blue-collar worker, how he relates. That's beautiful. There are many parallels I've found to uh, Jesus being a carpenter, and, and this what it means to us spiritually. A carpenter builds things and fixes, in this case, because the word meant not just a person who builds homes, but fixes things, fixes the roof, fixes the fence, uh, fixes the table that was busted. Jesus built things and he fixed things. Imagine being in Nazareth. Honey, the chair broke this morning. Ah, Take it to Jesus. Uh, He's a carpenter. He'll fix it. He can mend it. Imagine getting that stuff done by Jesus. Hey, Jesus, would you fix my roof? It's leaking. Sure, I'll be there. I'm sure he did a fine job. In the same way, when Jesus at 30 years of age took upon Himself, at the will of the Father and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the commission for which God called him, he continued in like fashion building and fixing. When God called Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah, I have called you as a prophet to the nations to tear down, to destroy, and then to build up and to plant. That's the work of a carpenter. Take the stuff that's kind of trashy and old and just bust it apart and then rebuild, start from the beginning and build it up. And Jesus came along the scene, 30 years of age, a carpenter from Nazareth, still building. Not anymore with his hands, building things out of wood, but building his kingdom. And he came in Matthew chapter 5, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He'd come to build a kingdom, to take fishermen and carpenters and clerical workers and the common people who heard him gladly and build a new kingdom. A kingdom that was so radically different from anything the world had ever known. So totally different from the standard and the value system of this world. He came to build a kingdom. And he came to build a church. You are Peter, but upon this rock I will build my church. I'm not going to get out a hammer and build a literal building. I'm going to build a group of people. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Jesus, the kingdom builder. Jesus, the one who was building His church. And it says in Peter, something really beautiful, that we are living stones, that God, who is the master builder, seeks to bring together into a holy house. You fit somewhere. And to let the carpenter do his work in your life means that you will let him take you if you're a Christian and find out where you fit. You're just a brick that fits somewhere. It might not be exactly where you think. You might think that you want to be the big hefty brick down at the bottom to support everything. And he might say, no, you're a tiny little stone right up here. But it's beautiful and it fits. So find out where you fit. Let me place you there. I'm building a body. He builds lives. Satan destroys lives. Jesus builds lives. Remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 10? He says, Satan comes to kill, to steal, to destroy. But I have come that you might have life. You might have it more abundantly. Satan is the destroyer of lives. Jesus comes to build lives. However, did you notice, and if you haven't, look back in Mark chapter 6, at a tragic thing that happened in Nazareth. That although Jesus came from this city and dared to call himself or be called a Nazarene and then a carpenter, that he was rejected. Look at, um, look at verse 3. Look at verse 2. When the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Now they were astonished, or they marveled, at the mighty works that Jesus was doing. However, look at verse 6. And he marveled, Because of their unbelief. And look at verse 5. He could do no mighty work there. Except he laid his hands on a few sick people. He got one instance. They're marveling at his works. He's marveling at their unbelief and won't do the mighty works. In other words, the carpenter comes to build lives, to change lives. But it all is hinging upon belief. You must trust Him for it. You must commit yourself to Him. And you must let Him do the building in our lives. There's nothing nothing worse than a stubborn Christian. You say, yes, there is a stubborn unbeliever. Well, in one sense, you can excuse the unbeliever because he's a sinner. But a Christian should be open and bendable to the work of the Lord. And God approaches you and he says, okay, I want to hone this area of your life. I've come to build and give you abundant life. No! I refuse to let you touch this area of my life. This has been a habit of mine for a long time. It doesn't go away easily. And I wonder if God comes and marvels at our unbelief and our uncooperation. He wants to build, but it takes the cooperation, takes the belief, takes the trust leaning upon him. And finally, not only is the carpenter building a kingdom, building a church, building lives, he's building a home in heaven. I love what Jesus said. He said, in my father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I am going to prepare a place for you. And that is a scripture, folks, that I share at every single funeral that I've done. Because it's one of the greatest promises that I can think of that this carpenter who came and identified himself with us, laborers, toilers, workers, came to build a kingdom, came to build lives, came to build a church, but didn't stop there. He's got something built for us in eternity. Heaven, a home, many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Jesus said, if I go, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you'll be there with me also. And he said, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And I can't think of more comforting words than that. And I always like to think at a funeral when people have watched their loved ones pass into eternity. If they've known the Lord, the comfort of those words. Jesus didn't stop with building your life. Jesus didn't say, I want to change your life and I want to make you something special and sanctified. And then, bye-bye, off you go. He went to prepare a place. He said that almost 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I am going. I now am going to prepare a place for you. There's going to come a day when I'm going to come again and take you there. Now, he's been building that place for, well, almost 2,000 years now, getting it all fixed up, building it nicely, getting it looking just right. Now, imagine what it must look like. If in six days God could create this earth and all of its beauty and the heavens and all of their glory, and He's been spending 2,000 years building that crash pad in heaven, imagine what that place must look like. No wonder Jesus said, Comfort one another with these words. The carpenter who builds lives builds a future. That's what's great. We don't know when the Lord's coming back. We don't know when we're going to die. You have, you have no guarantee on your life. You could go any moment. And every time I do a funeral, that truth is reiterated in my heart. And yet, we have the assurance that God is building something for us. The carpenter. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16 for just a moment. And I'm having you turn here in the same vein of thinking because Let's look at how a carpenter works. We see what a carpenter does and why he's called a carpenter. How does a carpenter work? 1 Samuel chapter 16. And let me give you a little uh, bit of explanation before we jump right into it. When a carpenter begins his work, he grabs a piece of wood and he sees potential in it. It's not the finished product, but he, in his mind's eye, sees it, what it will look like when it's completed. Like an artist. Give an artist a piece of stone, he'll go, oh, I see, oh, that's beautiful. And you're looking at it and going, what, what? It's a rock. Oh no, it's more than a rock. I see a beautiful work of art in there. Like Michelangelo, when he came to buy a chunk of marble, and the guy said, this is just a junky old rock and he goes oh no I need that piece of marble that's beautiful and he goes oh it's worthless he said no there's an angel trapped inside that piece of marble and I must set it free he saw the potential he saw in his mind's eye the completion and the carpenter looks at the tree or the block of wood and says oh I see how the grain's going I see the hardness of wood it's just long enough just wide enough I can fix this I see the potential it can be beautiful it can be strong It can be worthwhile. Now that's exactly how God picks people. He looks at our lives. Now we look at our lives and we think, I'm useless. There's nothing I have to offer. I can't sing. I can't dance. I can't preach. So I'll just sit. Jesus comes along and says, Ah, what potential. There's something in there that I must set free. I can work that life. I can change and see, he sees the rough product. That's what we give him. Nothing but a rough piece of wood. But the carpenter comes and he sees the potential and he says, ooh, put that on the lathe, chisel, a few knocks of the hammer. It'll be great. And that's why I've had you turn to First Samuel 16, because we see a beautiful story of potential. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? He was a fiery prophet. And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sacrificed. Jesse and his sons invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now he was out to find a king. Quit mourning for Saul, Samuel. Go to a new place, and I've got new blood. I'm going to choose a king. And so he's thinking in his mind, a king, what will this king look like? Oh, handsome, of course. Tall, stately, muscular. He'll have eloquence in speech. And so he looks at Eliab, the eldest of Jesse's boys, and he thinks, this is it. Good going, God. I've heard your voice. The Holy Spirit led me to Bethlehem. This is great. And God goes, um, wrong. This is not the one. I didn't choose Eliab. Do not look at his appearance, verse 7, or at the height of his stature, because I've refused him. And here's the clencher. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither is the Lord chosen, this one. And you know how the story goes, I think. All the sons pass before him and God goes, nope, 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 nope. And Samuel's out there scratching his head and goes, wait a minute. Did I hear wrong from the Lord? Do you have any more kids? Oh, we have one kid. He's a shepherd boy. Blue-collar worker. Laborer. Just hangs out in the fields. His dad didn't even think him necessary to bring into the family unit to be counted as his son. Talk about rejection. And God picked him. God picked him, the lowest on the totem pole. In fact, God called David a man after his own heart. Because though David wasn't very tall, short little guy, God looked at his heart. He's an interior decorator. I've chosen him. He cries out after me. He says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want him. He's the king. But he's not very skilled. But I see potential. Oh, but he has wild tendencies. He might be a renegade. But I've chosen him. Oh, but he might sin later on. But he's a man after my own heart. And I see the potential in David, and I'm going to choose David. And God raised him up as the king of Israel. <laughs> Look at the disciples. Would you have picked the disciples for a worldwide evangelistic campaign? You've got a few short years to get your message out to all of the world, the known world, without radio, without television, without uh, written literature. Who would you choose? You wouldn't choose Peter. And yet Jesus saw the potential. uh you're Cephas. Or you're Simon. That's your name. But I'm going to retitle you Cephas, Rock. Because I see the potential in you. It's what I'm going to make you. None of us would have picked them. Unlearned, ignorant men, God chose them. Perhaps the consultant management would have picked Judas. Uh, he was transaction-oriented business mind. He kept the treasury. He was concerned about the the money, the transaction, the goal. And Jesus saw the potential in the fishermen. Uh, I remember when I lived, this might sound strange, but I lived in a garage. I'll tell you why. I was in Orange County, California. Um, Just got a job. Rent was expensive. And my friend had an apartment, he had a garage he never parked his car in, and so I said, uh, Jack, could I rent your garage, say for $10 a month? And, uh, I'll put my couch in there and rug in there and I'll, my books and I'll just live. And he said, sure. So that was my home, his garage. And, uh, I used that time for many months to spend intensive time studying the Bible. And I bought commentaries and I bought books and I'd spend night after night studying. And I'll never forget when I came to a Bible study and one gentleman asked me after I taught, well, uh, where did you get your education? Uh, Where where do you study? Where would you study at? And I I couldn't resist. I said, a garage in Costa Mesa. And he thought, this guy is the biggest joker in the world. What do you mean? Where would you study? And I said, well, I did. I didn't go to any formal education. I just spend time in the Word and uh, study on my own. And the reaction that I get from telling people that I didn't have the formal education is, oh, well, then I can't receive anything from you. Where's your credentials? Well, I hope they're in the fruit of the ministry that goes on. I hope they're in people's changed lives. The school that I go to and the school that I recommend everyone go to is called HSU. HSU. Holy Spirit University. There's classes in session all the time. He is the best instructor that there is. You might not have all of the background. Well, I'm here to tell you as one who has not any background, all you have to do is be rough wood and say, Lord, I am available, but make me a man or a woman after your own heart. And the carpenter will take the wood, see the potential, and hone a beautiful object for his glory out of it. That's the beauty of it. I was in the Philippines, and I spoke to pastors, most of them which have no education, hardly at all, maybe high school. And they feel so intimidated when people from the United States come with their technology, their learning, their books. And here they are, if they're lucky, just to have a Bible out in the bush. If they're really rich, they have a study Bible with notes. And if they're very wealthy, they have a concordance or maybe a Bible dictionary to go along with it. And we did a class in interpreting the Bible, and I told them, frankly, all you need is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Because if God was depending upon people knowing and mastering the original languages in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, then there would be a very elite few people in the world who would be... considered ministers of the gospel, because very few of you will ever get that opportunity. God doesn't work that way. God takes the common person, as we mentioned last week, that rough wood, and sees the potential and uses them. Why? Well, it's obvious. Because if God chooses a vessel that isn't really that great, and he does a great job with it, all the glory goes to the one doing the work. The glory and the craftsmanship of the worker is more enhanced because of the limited tools that he is using. Any skilled physician can walk into a surgery suite with sterile conditions, scalpel, anesthesia, put a person under and perform surgery. But put the guy in the jungles with the Swiss Army knife. Having to perform Emergency surgery. And if the guy makes it, they think, you are an amazing physician. With just a Swiss army knife, you performed a critical operation. How skilled, how talented. You see, the greatness of the person doing the work is more enhanced. A carpenter. Give them a power lathe, tools, saws, drills, all the latest and have them make something. Oh, there's a there's a degree of craftsmanship and skill. But give the same guy some old hand tools. Hand planes. When they used to put stuff together and they dovetail them together and hand plane them. And look at the old antiques, the beautiful works of art. You think, ooh, look at that craftsmanship. It didn't go through a machine. And the glory of the one doing the work is more enhanced. That's why God does it. If anyone ever had a job to do with inadequate tools, it was God. Look at, look at the people in His toolbox. Remember our scripture we keep referring back to? God has chosen the foolish things, the weak things, the things that are nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no flesh would glory in His presence. So that when a work of God is done, people will not go, Amazing that person with all the education, all of the, the, all the eloquence, all that it takes. But so the people will walk away scratching their heads going, can't figure it out, must be the Lord. Then God gets the glory. He doesn't want flesh getting the glory. And that's why we've said so often, God often goes out of His way Instead of choosing the greatest, most eloquent, most educated, Joe Nerdkin in the backwoods of Nowheresville, and chooses him and changes him and uses him. So that no flesh would glory in his presence. And he's looking for tools to use, folks. And he's patient. He'll take you, rough as you are, and hone you and make you beautiful. But you got to cooperate. Marvel at his mighty works, but don't let him marvel at your unbelief. And as I was thinking in closing this, I thought, Jesus the carpenter also died a carpenter's death. The one who probably went out and cut down trees, looking and seeing their potential, planing them down, was also nailed to a tree, as Peter said. He bore our sins being nailed to a tree, and the hammer was lifted upon his own hand, and nails that he often put in wood were put in his own hands and his own feet, and he bled on the cross as a carpenter. And yet it was his love that stuck him on that tree. And the whole reason that you and I can say, Lord Jesus, the carpenter, come and make something beautiful out of my life is because Jesus Christ, the carpenter, the Son of God, bled on the tree willfully. And so I challenge you, if you're a Christian, to cooperate with God tonight and let him hone you. Let him take out the tools, the hammer, pound, cut. Finish. Beautify. And if you don't know the Lord tonight, you're missing out. There's nothing quite as rich as being under the hand of a carpenter. Taking your life and watching it change and go from glory to glory and shape to shape. It's such a blast to watch God take a life and change it. And look back and say, oh, I remember what I used to be like and the progress that I've made. And that's the Lord. Well, he's done so much. i tried before. I couldn't do it. I took all those classes in how to change my image and all those seminars and it didn't work. But Jesus has changed me. The hand of the carpenter, the touch of a master's hand. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we look to you because you have sent your Son on our behalf. Helpless people, rough wood, We admit that, Lord. We admit that there is nothing in ourselves that merits your salvation, your tenderness, your care. But Lord, thank you for stooping down, becoming a man, becoming a carpenter, relating to the common folk, stooping so low that all men could come. Lord, as we pray this prayer, we recognize that our hearts are now under the microscope of your Spirit. And you alone know if we are praying this prayer in all sincerity. And so we bear our hearts before You and we ask that You will take these rough pieces of wood and hone and make something beautiful out of them. Be the carpenter for us. Reshape us, Lord. Change us. And Lord, I pray that people who have never submitted themselves to you tonight would do that before the night is over, that they would allow their lives to be placed into the hands of the only capable carpenter, the one who can mend and fix anything.